you're always trying to achieve justice, a law that at one point is just or looks like it could be just to a situation a hundred years later is serving the wrong ends. It's, it's being exploited. You had Moses create a bronze staff, a serpent, and you know everyone was healed by it. But then in Kings, we're told that this bronze staff is now being worshipped as an idol. That something that was the source of healing and divine revelation has become idolized and now is the reverse. It is something that must be destroyed. Welcome back to Advent Next, a theological podcast curated for curious faith discussions. Now, I want to welcome you to the long-awaited conclusion of this four-week conversation where we delve into the principles that Matthew Cortman's book, Saying No to God, brings out surrounding justice, biblical interpretation, and relationship with God. You can follow our guest today on Twitter at mcortman, and be sure to check out his book, Saying No to God. We want to thank the Adventist Learning Community for making this program possible. If you're not already following us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, be sure to find us at the handle at AdventNext. You can follow me at Kendra R. Snow with an X. But right now, this is Advent Next. Maybe we can talk about some of those principles and how they would be applied. I think maybe somebody hearing you right now might say like, oh, well, so you're saying there's some things that are inspired in the Bible and they're not. And and they might, you know, might say, look, well, how are we to determine what we should be, um, you know, uh, what, what we should obey and what we should not obey? Isn't that making us, you know, you know not like not uh, taking the Bible wholesale, right? Like we're picking and choosing our religion and and that's not true. Uh, Christianity, right? Like, so what are you not saying? What are you saying? And then maybe we can get into some of the principles behind that you think would be good uh, from the stories and the extractions. What are some of the principles that you have extracted that would be applicable for us today? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, a great way to start is just to look at Matthew 19, where Jesus Mm -hmm. is confronted about divorce in the Torah in Deuteronomy. And he's asked, Uh, by the uh, Pharisees or Sadducees. Okay, so uh, Moses wrote this in the law. Um, Although, to be clear, in the law, it says God spoke it. Moses is just writing it down on Sinai, but God's the one speaking all these divorce laws. Uh, And so what ends up happening is Jesus goes ahead and says, really in kind of startling words for people who come from more of a conservative perspective on this issue, he's like, well, Moses wrote that, not God. (laughs) <laughs> that wasn't God's will. That was Moses's. Wait, so as a principle, we just now learned from Jesus that there are things in the Bible that reflect Moses, not God, even though in the Bible, they're written as God speaking, not Moses. Okay, so that's a startling moment. He goes ahead and says, there was historical circumstances and context. That was why that was given by Moses so, like, he's not saying Moses is a terrible person. He's saying that there was a historical contingency that required that rule, not because I wanted it, but because basically Moses decided it was the better thing to do. Again, Scripture is contingent. Elements or laws in Scripture that are said to be by God's eternal edict are actually being influenced by Moses' desires and questions and his own context. Okay. Woo! Yeah. It's not like he, ex- this is what I love about the passage. It's not like Jesus expected that they knew that. It's not like he's like, oh, yeah, you know about that historical context. Mm -mm. His point is, actually, even though you couldn't know all that, because the text in Deuteronomy never reveals that, 
it doesn't actually absolve you of all the problems you've had. Because if you had read Genesis, you would have noticed that there was a discrepancy between how marriage is established and what is talked about in Deuteronomy. And so because one represents the beginnings and the origin and the principle, and another, even though it's the explicit word of God, seems to contradict the principles, you know to reject that and go with the principle. Mm. And so he's not telling them, oh, it's understandable. You didn't know the historical context, so you're off the hook. But now you know. Now I've revealed it to you, so now you must do it. No, he's condemning them. He's saying you should have known Scripture well enough to know that the principles given contradicted the words explicitly given. So you would know then to supplement the words with the principles, even to the point of potentially removing the words entirely. So it mm -hmm. becomes this interesting element here. And you go, oh, no, right? Is, is this suggesting that there are things in the Bible that are uninspired or things that are uh, not um, really scripture? And so do we need to take scissors and start cutting, right? This was something Ellen White constantly was annoyed by and warned against. Like, stop yeah. this. This is, this is stupid going around trying to say this is inspired. That's not inspired. Jesus gives us the key. Whenever he's engaging in these topics, He's calling the Bible both the words of Moses and the commands of God. When in Mark he, 7, I think it is, he's talking about the commandments of God, he describes the commandments, the Ten Commandments, as the words that Moses said and the commands of God. And he equates both the Mosaic regulations in Exodus 21 and 22 alongside the uh, Ten Commandments as equal as both mm. words of Moses. Like, there's no difference. Mm. But it's this tension of it's both the authoritative word of God and the contingent historical words of Moses. This and when you say contingent, yeah, let me no. just caveat for you. Like, so when you say contingent words of Moses, like, because it says, like, for example, the example you're giving, you know, um, because of the hardness of your heart, like, Moses made this exception. So is it still historically correct? Like, is 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 Jesus commenting more so on the abuse of that law that was happening in the first century? Or is it more so there are circumstances where this would be an applicable rule, but like this is the underlying principle, like this is the ideal, but this is how things have been made accommodated because of sin. Right, and that is a beautiful way of illustrating what is essentially this tension that we're dealing with in these texts, is Jesus both asserting that it is contingent, it's influenced by history, it comes in human words, it's given in time and space, and as such is already not at all divine like it was in its source. And mm -hmm. yet, it's still functioning for us as authoritative. We're not dismissing it. Jesus isn't going around saying, get rid of Deuteronomy, it's got a mistake in it, or it's not applicable anymore, so we don't need it anymore. No, he's, he's marrying these tensions. This is the same person who in one breath can condemn the lawyers and say, well, you know how to make interpretations that make the law harsher, but you never think to use those interpretations to make it easier. But at the same time is saying not one you know, part of the law is going to fall. I fulfill everything, right? So there's this sense in which it's this constantly evolving thing, but then how does it remain authoritative? So you're pointing out, okay, what do we do in regards to understanding the role of this law in Deuteronomy? Okay. I would suggest think of it by looking at some other examples. So when we look at um, the story of Job, it, God comes in the whirlwind to Job, who is not an Israelite, 
is not living in Israel. He's in polytheistic Edom, right? He uses a bunch of Canaanite names for God and for, for other gods throughout the text in Hebrew. And when God comes to him, he describes Leviathan. And when he's describing Leviathan, he tells, uh, God tells Job, did not the gods quake when they saw Leviathan roaring? I alone among the gods am the only one who can approach, right? Like, wow, God's admitting there are other gods? Hmm. Like, if you take that literally, you're going to have to come away with the assumption, well, God acknowledged there's other gods, right? Yeah. But of course, as a monotheistic Jew, you're not going to read it that way. So what are you going to read it as? God is condescending himself to Job's current temporal time space understanding, speaking to him in a way that makes sense to him, but mm. is trying to get a message across that is more important than whether or not he theologically is polytheistic, henotheistic, or monotheistic. That's mm. not God's concern in the speech. I don't, need to, mm. I don't need to parse those details for you. I just need to know if you can understand what I'm trying to do right now. And then, yeah. you know, look at that in comparison with Jesus uh, giving the um, parable of the rich man and Lazarus, where, mm. um, as Ellen White herself acknowledges in Desire of Ages, you know, this was a belief that many of the Jews that were listening to Jesus held. We know this historically. Lots of Jews did have a belief in an afterlife and in a, and a sort of hellish kind of heaven dichotomy. And mm. so Jesus, by giving the story this way, Ellen White notes, is acknowledging that he knows that a bunch of people are going to think he's endorsing this view, and he's okay with that. He's okay with allowing uh, the assumption that he's okay with a hell in order to get the message about poverty across to them. It's mm -hmm. okay for a little uh, condescending, a little con you know, uh, coming down low to their level not worrying about the theological details of this story in order to make sure that the deeper moral message I want to get across comes to them. So yeah. in that sense, right, it's not that these texts aren't scripture or that it's, you know, we can say, oh, we can take those verses out of the Bible. They're, you know, in Job, they're wrong. It's, it's more of an issue of recognizing that anything God is delivering to humans is coming within that time and space and is going to be affected by historical context, right? Principles right. won't. But any direct formulation in words of what God wants is going to inevitably be affected by this. Mm -hmm. So it's not to say that, um, oh, it was a perfect thing of God at one point and then it doesn't. Or, um, you know, it's evolved and changed. It's more of recognizing in a sort of, um, to use the analogy of Jacques Derrida, French philosopher, who, taught, who gave us the word deconstruction. Um, he talks about deconstruction in relationship to law and justice. So uh, this is a good illustration for the, the problem we're facing and, how, and its solution. You've got justice, which is not deconstructible by virtue of the fact that if, if you can deconstruct it, it means that you can build it. You can only deconstruct something that exists tangibly. So glass, you can break, you can break it down into its molecules. But ideas or principles or things that are of higher value to us, like, they're not existent. We can't grab something and say that's justice and then start deconstructing it like a clock, right? In the same way, God is undeconstructible. It's not something you can break down. So you've got justice, and it's this ideal. But even though it doesn't exist, it's not a tangible thing that you can point to and say that's just, it's still 
calls on us. We feel this, this voice calling us, urging us to enact justice. Even though we don't see an exact version of what it is, we, we sense this need to go in that direction and enact justice. So what we do is we create laws. And these laws are approximations of what we're trying to achieve in the name of justice. Even though the laws aren't just, the moment you think that a law is just, it turns into an idol. And so inevitably, you have to be okay with this idea that you're always trying to achieve justice, but every approximation of it inevitably is affected by the fact that it's constructed. The moment that we enact a law, it's a constructed thing, so you can deconstruct it. A law that at one point is just or looks like it could be just to a situation 100 years later is serving the, need, the, the, the wrong ends. It's, it's being exploited. So hmm. what that tells us then is like, God's words are kind of like this. No matter what God says, it's going to inevitably come to us in our time and space. It's going to become constructed in our language, in, in a thing of a sort. And in the moment that happens, we're going to be able to deconstruct it. We're going to be able to, like Jesus, say, Moses gave it for this reason. It's constructed this way because of circumstances. It's in contradiction to the main principle. But that's not, it's not a problem, right? For Derrida, it's not an issue that the laws aren't just. That's reality. The mm -hmm. issue is recognizing they're not idols. We don't take a law and then mistake it for justice. So, yeah. i.e., if applied to scripture, we don't look at the words of scripture and then idolize them and think, oh no, that is God. Mm. No, that's God's words in human language in a specific time and place. But it yeah. does not then idolize and become then um, a representation of God. We don't fall into the trap, in other words, of um, the Israelites who they had in the, you know, the Torah, they were, you had Moses create a bronze staff, a serpent, and you know, everyone was healed by it. But then in Kings, we're told that this bronze staff is now being worshipped as an idol, that something that was the source of healing and divine revelation has become idolized and now is the reverse. It is something that must be destroyed by King Hezekiah. Wow. It, so in the yeah. same sense, right, it's like we have to understand that the same principles of idolatry can apply towards scripture. It's not to say, oh, no, what's the thing that's eternal in the Bible? God's yeah. eternal. The scripture is the calling forth, the inspiration that brings out the response and the, the approximation of God. And we learn from that. But in learning from that, we also then recognize what it is and why God stands beyond it and why Jesus becoming human matters so deeply. So I definitely wow. think that like the question, right, it's natural, but the, it's driven by the fact that we're wanting that certainty. We're wanting that, that, that divinity, that not approximation of God, but that actually here it is, here is God. And wow. we need to be able to accept the fact that we have to be um, like Jesus on the cross when he goes ahead and cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, yeah. That psalm that he's quoting is a protest psalm. It is, it is not an actual cry of the individual saying, I don't know why this is happening to me. I'm scared when doubtful. The, the, it's a lawsuit psalm. It's intended to say, God, why have you forsaken me? You have a duty to not do this. You are better than this. The psalmist cries out because he believes that God is not going to forsake him. He's calling God out because he has a conviction like Jacob, you will bless. 
when Jesus is on that cross and we see in Mark and Matthew, he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I would argue this is not, um, this is not a cry of destitution and doubt and fear. This is confrontation. This is God like Jacob coming to his father and saying, Lord, I, have, I am surrounded by every reason to think that you've abandoned me but I don't believe you will. And that's mm-hmm. why I can still cry out to you as father. Because if I really thought you abandoned me, I wouldn't call out to you as dad. I wouldn't say mm-hmm. Abba. And it's fascinating that Paul will later allude to this and say this is why we have the privilege of calling uh, God Abba. Right? Mm-hmm. Like this allusion to this idea that we stand in this tradition of what Jesus Christ did. And what that kind of leads us then to understand is that You know, just as um, Jesus represents, according to Paul, the second Adam, right? Jesus is also the second Jacob. He's Mm. the epitome of what it means to fulfill the name of Israel. Because, right, Israel doesn't just mean, and I kind of kept this in my pocket, it doesn't just mean those who fight God. It's ambiguous. It can mean both. It can mean God fighter and the God who fights. Mm. Who else in Israel's history ever fulfilled both of those requirements except Jesus? Jesus Mm -hmm. is the one who fights for God on that cross, crying out to him, saying, I know you will not abandon me. I know, like the psalmist, you are there for me, even if it looks like it doesn't, and is also God himself fighting for humanity, right? So we Mm -hmm. see this beautiful imagery in which not only is the idea of Um, arguing or fighting or wrestling with God, a central theme of humanity, Israel, but it's a central theme at the heart of Christianity that God on resurrection morning is giving a message to the disciples and and humanity that having faith in him is not misplaced. He has Mm. humanity's interest. And if he had Christ's interest and Christ is come back, in the same way Paul can argue, Christ is the first fruit, we're the rest of the harvest. Right. If it's happened for Christ, God will be faithful to us as well. Yeah, I love this. And I love this kind of distinction that you made about justice um, laws being the approximation of justice. And what we see in Scripture is an approximation of God. Right. And that there's we're always trying to really grasp him in a more tangible way. But sometimes we have to understand that he's coming within a context um, and that because there is God entering into time and space and culture, that there will be remnants of things that need to be adapted, right? So as we kind of move forward and as we kind of uh, kind of wrap up, like this has been just a fascinating and uh, just very stimulating conversation. Uh, I wonder what are some of the principles that you would say that we could take from this to move forward uh, in a way that, like you said, you know, maybe giving ourselves permission to say no to God, to maybe press past those dark spots of his severity and see something better. How does this make a more united church? What, what would you bring away uh, with this conversation for us to take uh, into the future? Well, one of the things I think that makes this so remarkable, not only the fact that it has a pedigree in, in Martin Luther and Calvin, and I could mention other thinkers too, Kierkegaard and, and, and uh, Karl Barth and others, but even Ellen White for Adventism uh, with Exodus 32 espouses this, deals with this issue. Um, and it, so we have a connection within Adventism to this thinking. But also foremost, 
I think what we have to recognize is that Scripture, it is intended to bring us into a unity with God, a partnership with God. That's always like um, Ellen White's favorite term is co-laboring with God's purposes. Mm -hmm. In order to do that, we have to be sure we know who God's character is, right? One of the big central themes of Adventism, uh, thanks to Ellen White, was like the idea of the great controversy, and right? And at the heart of the great controversy is this understanding of the idea that the controversy was over God's character, as, as Ellen White presents it in Patriarchs and Prophets. It's, it's a fight over, is God fair? Is God just, right? So you have to know who God is in order to know and discern which side of this controversy is truthful. So if knowing who God is is central to this. So we have to pay very close attention to understanding that point and paying attention to it. But then beyond the need to see this as intimately connected both to the three angels message and connected to Adventism and connected to our beliefs, there's also the fact too that I think is great about this is we're looking for a way to read scripture that both takes seriously the best of liberal scholarship and thinking and theology while still remaining conservative regarding the value of the Bible, its authority for our lives, not letting us go down a sort of humanistic, uh, you know, autonomous kind of morality uh, road. And that's it's a legitimate concern. What I love is that when the church had um, the methods in Bible study group uh, come together to create that document in the 1980s about what's approved methods of Bible study, they laid a groundwork um, principle that is fulfilled in this kind of reading of Scripture. And that is... Scripture needs to deliver for us its own guiding interpretation of Scripture. Like, we need to be able to derive from the Bible a principle for how to interpret it, that the Bible itself was giving to us, rather than us self-imposing some outside principle onto it. It needs to be self-derived. And the thing is, what's great about these stories and these texts is they're all from Scripture. These aren't ideas that Luther came up with, and now we're applying them on top of it. Even, even Derrida's own concept really matches perfectly with the evidence that we're seeing here. It's not being self-imposed. It's recognizing what's in the text already, what is intrinsic to sort of uh, materiality and how the Bible fits in that. So the very need that our church has stipulated about how do we, and certainly even evangelicals and others, should interpret Scripture is find it in the Bible. This is as close to in the Bible as you can get. This is the core of Israel's identity. It's connected intimately in both Testaments. So this is, as a guiding principle, I think the best road that certainly Adventism has, but I think also in general for other Christian groups, to create an uh, interpretive hermeneutic for approaching Scripture by utilizing Scripture, not needing to go outside, not needing to feel like you're finding it somewhere else. And if we can do that, then I think we can create a middle ground where, again, instead of us debating like on the Theology of Ordination Committee, where you ended up getting uh, these different groups that basically fit into just two categories. Historical context matters. No, it doesn't. God said it. Okay, great. That's not going to, no one changed their minds on that committee. That's the mm -hmm. problem. No one moved because you have this completely different way of understanding the Bible. If you can look at the Bible and go, oh, wait a minute, this is how it talks about itself. Wait a minute, this is how it presents itself. And then you start to use these principles that are symbolized in the very name of Israel. Now you have the ability to come together and start asking different questions. 
does women's ordination better reflect the character of God than exclusion does? So now you have to defend why exclusion makes a better match to God's character in principle rather than inclusion. So like that's a whole new argument, right? That, they weren't having that argument because one group would not allow themselves to consider it. Now it becomes the imperative using the Bible to say, you need to have a discussion not about whether or not you think that this is the word of God and thus you don't have an opinion on it, but rather does this best reflect the character of God? In what sense will you, like Moses, take a stand or will you accept a certain view? Why? And now, you know, there are, as I explore in one chapter in the book, there are many stories of people who fought with God and don't win, right? And that shouldn't, should not be assumed. And some people get the bad idea all of a sudden, oh, it's just a, a smorgasbord. You can just do whatever you want, fight with God for your views, and it works out okay. No, Jonah, Miriam, and a host of other characters, including Samuel and others, all illustrate there are definitely a, there's a definitely wrong way to approach this topic. And what's fun, though, is as I break it down, when you look at all the characters who won and you look at all the characters who lost and then you go down what was the principle they were fighting for, you get a list, two separate parallel lists, and the lists are night and day different. One is about prejudice and xenophobia and hatred and like all these things that you would never think are related to God. You're like, that's not the character of Christ. But those are all the things that the people who lost were fighting for. Then you look at all these things regarding inclusion and uh, caring for the other, yada, 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 go down the list. These are all things you already expected that God believed in. Why would they even have to fight over it? And so what you really start to get a knowledge of, and this isn't like exhaustive, but it tells you as a guideline, things that are intrinsic to God's character and you're fighting for, right? You're on the right footing. Things that are contrary to God's character, you're not going to change God's mind. You, you, you're on fundamentally wrong footing. And Jonah epitomizes this really well because Jonah says, I knew that you're a forgiving, gracious God. That's right. why I didn't want to do what you did because I knew mm. this was what's going to happen, right? Yeah. Jonah's not saying, um, oh no, Lord, you're diverging. I want you to be hateful because that's what you've always been. No, no, he knows God's been good and gracious. He doesn't like it. The issue is with him in his heart. Yeah. That's why it colors his way of interpreting theology and why it goes wrong. Thanks so much for tuning in this week. I hope that you were blessed by the four-week conversation that we had with Matthew Cortman. Uh, be sure to check him out on Twitter at mcortman and check out his book, Saying No to God. But I hope that this conversation really helps you to think deeper about your own biblical studies and your own personal relationship with God. If you're not already following us on Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram, be sure to do so at Advent Next. I just want to give a special shout out to everyone who's been engaging and who has been like just sending me messages about the content. I want to say I appreciate you. I think that, uh, you know, it's always good to give feedback, hear where you guys are at, hear what you're taking away from the conversations. And uh, I want to be sure to just be providing relevant information uh, for your own journey with God. So please uh, keep up with the feedback. And I'm so appreciative of all of the listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in and I'll see you next week.